The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. And Alaska Airlines, committed to enhancing our community's cultural and economic vitality for over 35 years. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. We are continuing our summer series called Failure is Not an Option as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. And today we begin the story of Jerry Cobb, part one of a two-part miniseries about this pioneering aviator who was part of an early program designed to put women in space first, before even the Mercury program put the first American man in space. In this episode, docent John Fehrenbach introduces us to Jerry and her colleagues in this groundbreaking program. I first learned about Jerry Cobb investigating the story of the Mercury 13 women who were part of astronaut testing program. And I used testing specifically instead of training because none of these women ever received formal training from NASA, which you know bespeaks of the situation that, that they were never uh, formally invited to become astronauts under the auspices of, of NASA training. But the story really goes back to the late 1950s, and there's, there's three principal characters that I think you can't tell the story without uh, talking about them. The first is Dr. Randy Lovelace, director of space medicine at NASA for a period of time. In that capacity, he was involved in the testing and selection of the original NASA astronauts, the men. The second character is Jackie Cochran, and any visitor to the museum will probably uh, see mention of Jackie Cochran in in many places around the museum. She was certainly a, a pioneer aviator. And then the third character is Jerry Cobb, very much a pioneer, a very accomplished pilot, held many, many records in her early years, flew first at the age of 12, uh, had her pilot's license by the age of 16 and a commercial license by the age of 18. And, uh, and by the age of 19, she was delivering military aircraft to uh, South American governments and European governments. So those three characters come into play. And, uh, and we go back to the, the era of the early space race when... The Mercury program was happening. The Mercury program, right. correct. Mercury 13. And the Mercury 7, the men, were, uh, were selected in, I believe, April of 1959. And uh, just about that time, uh, Lieutenant or a, a General uh, Donald Flickinger of the Air Force and Dr. Lovelace, who I talked about earlier, were had just returned from a technical meeting in Moscow, and they learned that, that the Soviet government was thinking about putting a woman astronaut up in space. General Flickinger and Dr. Lovelace both shared the idea that it might be more practical, from strictly from a pragmatic point of view to put a woman astronaut in space first before men. There's physiological reasons. Absolutely. Physiological reasons. They were they were lighter. 
uh, would consume less oxygen and, and life support systems because they were lighter. If they were lighter, you could put more payload of a different type up or you could extend a mission and things like that. So there were, there were just practical reasons that you might consider a, a woman astronaut first. And then from a not just physiological but psychological standpoint as well, it was considered that women handled the stress better, you know, just might be able to handle stressful situations uh, better. So they had the idea that after the, the Mercury 7 men were identified, uh, that they would like to continue that testing program to evaluate qualified uh, female candidates. And NASA had no such objective. We have to understand the context that the space race was operating in at the time. We were behind. From the get-go, from Sputnik in, in 1957, the United States was behind the Russians. Our stuff was exploding on the launch pad. That's right. And we needed to catch up. We needed to be able to, to you know, try and get to where the Soviets were and not always be uh, lagging, lagging behind. So when it came to identifying astronauts, one way to catch up, so to speak, is to access a, a qualified group of individuals where they've already met a certain set of criteria. And uh, NASA decided that that pool should be military test pilots, that they've been through rigorous training. You know, you could forego having to retrain and requalify a, a bunch of candidates if you had a qualified set of candidates in, in military test pilots. The only problem with that from a social cultural aspect is that women weren't allowed to be military test pilots at that time. So by making that decision, uh, women were specifically precluded from becoming astronauts in the, in the NASA program. So General Flicklinger and Dr. Lovelace thought, well, let's at least evaluate some women from a from a physical testing, physiological testing standpoint, and see you know how they would they would compare. After coming back from Moscow, these two men met Jerry Cobb, who was an accomplished young uh, female aviator. They met her at an industry meeting of some sort in Miami, and asked her if she would be interested in being the first woman to to go through the testing that the Mercury 7 astronauts had been through. And I've seen numerous film clips of her response where she said she couldn't say yes fast enough. <laughs> she was she was very interested in that. So they immediately started her on this initial testing. And at the same time, she started uh, recruiting through her connections. She was a member of the 99s. That's the, uh, uh, the organization of women pilots. So she had some connections uh, through that. Uh, and she was starting to identify other candidates who she thought would be qualified and might be interested in doing this type of thing. General Flickinger was the director of a program within the Air Force called Women in Space Earliest. And again, this relates to the fact that he thought that there might be a practical reason to put women up in space before men. So It would be of wise the, to do so. It would be wise. That was the acronym. Dr. Lovelace was involved because he was the, the director of space medicine. Did NASA exist at this point? NASA did exist. But this uh, was not a NASA program. It was an Air Force mm -hmm. program. So this idea is, is, you know, being tossed around in Air Force channels. And when people realized that there was no, there was no customer to this process. NASA did not have a requirement for, for female astronauts. So, so what was the Air Force doing testing <laughs> potential female candidates. And when they realized that they had no end user, that NASA wasn't going to be asking for these female candidates, the Air Force canceled the program. So 
year in the Air Force, General Flickinger knew how to to follow orders, so he stepped back. The, the you know the pro that program, Women in Space, earliest was canceled, but he asked Dr. Lovelace to continue on his own means. Uh, Dr. Lovelace, after World War II, had joined a clinic in Albuquerque, the Lovelace Clinic, which was founded by his uncle. So Dr. Lovelace joined the Lovelace Clinic, and so he had at his disposal the medical facilities required to to test these candidates. And now Jackie Cochran comes into the into the picture uh, because, first of all, when the Women in Space Earliest program was announced, Jackie Cochran had a long-term friendship with Dr. Lovelace dating back to the 30s, and, and her husband was uh, on the board of directors at the, at the clinic. So there's lots of communication going on there, and, and Jackie's a, a preeminent character in aviation. Right. So she was also involved in identifying candidates, and you know, by some of the sources that I've, I've seen and heard uh, and read, uh, she was also interested in being a candidate herself, although she was um, significantly older at that point in time in the in the late uh, 1950s. She and her husband had the, the wherewithal to pay for the expenses of candidates who would come to Albuquerque to do the testing. So the testing, the program continued. It was renamed the Women in Space Program, which has as an acronym is WISP, which <laughs> maybe is not as... as uh, Women in military and government programs did not always get the flashiest acronym. Right, right. <laughs> Jerry Cobb had her own acronym for the women who eventually tested in this program, and it was FLATS. And that didn't, <laughs> that didn't catch on at all. So, um, And the term Mercury 13 was actually never used until probably 20 years later. So, you know, this was a group that was kind of anonymous. But in any case, uh, the testing, the program did continue under a different name in Albuquerque and essentially privately funded because Dr. Lovelace was bearing the costs of the testing and then Jackie Cochran and her husband were, were paying the expenses for the women who did come to Albuquerque. So Jerry Cobb was, was you know, the, the, the beginning of that group. Uh, eventually, 25 women were invited 19 women were tested, and 13 passed the testing to the same level that the, that the Mercury uh, men, the Mercury 7 men, had tested. So that pass rate, 13 out of 19, was actually a better pass rate than the, the male candidates who had been tested for the, for the astronaut program. And at this point, it's all under the radar of NASA. This is not a NASA program. This is a private program funded independently by Dr. Lovelace and and Jackie Cochran. The next stage of the testing would have been advanced physiological testing and psychological testing. Jerry Cobb and some of the candidates from the, the Mercury 13 participated in that independently, the, especially the, the psychological testing. They went through some additional tests. Uh, eventually, Dr. Lovelace planned the advanced physiological testing at the Pensacola Naval Facility and this would have included centrifuge testing, you know, more advanced testing, again, that the... Your classic, what you think of when you're... Right. Uh, the same... Astronaut testing. Same testing that the Mercury astronauts had, had gone through. The centrifuge testing, the this gimbal testing where the uh, candidate is spun around in three different axes and, you know, being being rotated in three different axes at the same time, and the candidate has to figure out how to how to rate the ship, how to, how to stop all of the of the spinning and maintain uh, equilibrium. Uh, that was all to be conducted at the Pensacola Naval Facility. But the Navy 
eventually, following due process, they discovered to realize that NASA was not the end customer for this process. So they denied the use of their facility. Right. And From their perspective, it was private citizens asking to use a government facility with no Exactly. Nothing. Exactly. They had they had no government customer and so they could not provide the use of, of uh, that facility. So the program at that point was canceled. The 13 women were all prepared to travel. In fact, they were going to travel as a group. I mean, they were going to arrive in Florida as a group, which is, is something they had not been able to do during the earlier testing. They came to Albuquerque in, in ones or twos. And so in most cases, knew few, if any, of the other Mercury 13 women. Uh, in this case, they were going to all travel to, to Pensacola together. So you have that camaraderie of a group going through the same experience, which would have been a new thing for the for the female candidates. But it was canceled. Some of the women had quit their jobs in order to do this because their, their jobs wouldn't give them the time off to do it. And they felt that strongly that they, they wanted to, to be part of this. So it was really, practically speaking, that was the, the end of the program. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. This is episode two of our five-part series called Failure is Not an Option, sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We're leaving the story on a bit of a cliffhanger here. There's much more to come. And we'll continue in our next episode following Jerry Cobb as she and her cadre prepare to appear before Congress to get their program back instated. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. Music